Amen. If you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17, we are learning at the feet of Jesus as we are gathered in the company of His twelve through the Scriptures, considering what He is teaching us and preparing us for His death and His resurrection. If we can enter into the narrative of the Scripture, I think it will help us to understand the place that we now need to turn and to look. Now hear the Word of God beginning at verse 22 through verse 27. Now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill Him, and the third day He will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And when they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? And he said, Yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take custom or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, From strangers. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the, the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would pour your Spirit out upon us and the preaching of your Word, that we would receive it with open hearts, with clear minds, and that You would conform us into the image of Your Son, who is the image of God. How You have created uh, Your people to be the image of God, an image bears into this world to, to reflect Your light out into Your creation and to sum up the praises of creation and bring them before Your throne to worship You. And how thankful we are for Jesus, who is... Uh, that true mediator between heaven and earth, the true temple space, and how thankful we are for our Savior. And we ask that You would open up the Scriptures to us now and apply it to our lives, that You would be glorified in bringing forth the fruit that is meat for repentance and fruit of righteousness in all of our lives today. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. I had half a moment just to not seat you because you seem a little sleepy and lethargic this morning. So we could do like they did of old and just have you stand for the next three hours while I just uh, preached and preached to you. But you may be seated on those very uncomfortable black chairs. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> I am currently reading a biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the evenings while I am listening in the morning to an audio uh, book, The Rise and the Fall of the Third Reich. And how interesting these two are going together, and how interesting that when we consider what Christ is doing here, somehow it all com comes together. Bonhoeffer grew up in the time in which the, the rise of the Third Reich and Nazi Germany were beginning to make its way to power. Hitler was on his way to the power and was in power and persuaded 
the many masses of his countrymen to go to war through, through and with all of Europe. Not only is Hitler known for his brutal war tactics and genocide against millions of the Jews, and we often think about him in that light more than anything else, but he was also responsible for the deaths of so many other people as well as he dropped bombs on innocent civilian areas to literally breed terror to the peoples. Under the code name of Barbarossa is when he entered the Russian campaign, invaded Russia, and a part of the war tactic against Russia was something called the Hunger Plan, which was enacted to seize food from the Russians and give it to German soldiers and citizens and literally starve to death millions of the Russians. The plan entailed a mass murder by death by starvation, of millions of the Slavs, where literally around 9 to 10 million of them died an anguishing death of starvation. All in all, it was estimated that some 75 million people died in World War II, including 20 million military personnel and 40 million civilians, many of whom died because of the deliberate genocide the massacres, the mass bombings, the disease, and starvation because of Adolf Hitler. Bonhoeffer, who grew up in Germany and spent most of his days there growing up in Berlin, had a desire from a very early age to enter into the ministry. His father was an unbeliever. His mother was a professing believer. He comes from a pretty well-to-do stock. His brother was off working with um, um, Albert Einstein in splitting atoms. And so Bonhoeffer went to college at an early age, and by the time he was 21 years old, he had received his Ph.D. He was really neither a German Lutheran nor a German liberal, as was common in his day, though he was friends with both. He was of a Reformed theological perspective. But when he was asked why the church in Germany didn't do anything to stand against Nazi Germany, but rather went along with the country's war efforts and Hitler's grotesque plans, he answered that it was due the cheap grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness, he says, quote, without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Cheap grace, Bonhoeffer says, is to hear the gospel preached as follows, quote, of course you have sinned, but now everything is forgiven so you can stay as you are and enjoy the consolations of forgiveness. The main defect of such a proclamation is that it contains no demand for discipleship which cost, which costs. 
Costly grace confronts us as a gracious call to follow Jesus. It comes as a word of forgiveness to the broken spirit and a contrite heart. And it commands us to deny ourselves and to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. Bonhoeffer argued that as Christianity spread, the church became more secularized, accommodating the demands of obedience to Jesus to the requirements of society. In this way, the world was Christianized and grace became common property. The hazard of this was that the gospel was cheapened and obedience to the living Christ was gradually lost beneath formula and ritual so that in the end, grace could literally be sold for monetary gain. By the time Hitler rose to power, the church was already poised to accommodate his desires while clinging to their cheap grace and their worldly desires. Bonhoeffer is best known, perhaps, maybe for his book, which was entitled The Cost of Discipleship. He became involved in an anti-Nazi intelligence agency that worked with Western Allied forces to overthrow Germany, which included the assassination of Hitler. His activity was found out and he was in prison for a couple of years from which he wrote his letters from prison. And at the age of 39, he was hanged to death for the life that he lived. As we come to this morning's little obscure passage in the Scripture that is found nowhere else in any of the other Gospels, and in fact, Matthew's account is the only one that gives us this little narrative of the temple tax and Peter's reception of some instruction of Jesus over that topic. We must recall the primary focus in the context in which the Lord is now ministering as He turns away from primarily ministering to the crowds and He is now more privately teaching His disciples. And in this case, it appears as though Peter was alone in this particular instruction. He is now informing them and preparing for what will shortly take place in Jerusalem as He now begins to tell them that the Messiah, Him, their Rabbi, and their Lord, will go to Jerusalem and by the hands of men, he must die, and he will be raised again on the third day. Verse 22 and 23 of the text, he informs them of his pending death in Jerusalem. And at this point in the disciples' ministry, they had understood that Jesus was the Messiah. In chapter 16, he quizzes them on this, and he says, but, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking for the rest, speaks up and says, Jesus, You are Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Men did not give You this, but My Father which is in heaven. 
They understood by this point in the ministry of His person, who He was, the Son of God, the coming Messiah. Here is the One that they had long been waiting for. But the news that the Messiah was about to be killed by the hands of men was for them quite a paradox. Yet for Jesus to accomplish what He came to do, it was essential that men understood not only that He had to die, but understood the reason why He died. And this is not cheap grace. It cost our Lord His life. And He says, if you're going to be My disciple, you must be willing to count the cost too. And to deny yourself and pick up the cross and come and follow Me. It would cost the life of our Lord in order to save us from all of our enemies. So He informed them that the Messiah must die and be raised again on the third day. This is the essence of the good news. The good news, which we call the Gospel. For in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1-4, through Paul puts it in such a succinct and very um, clear way when he says, and this is the Gospel that I have declared and preached to you, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and He was buried and He was raised again the third day according to the Scriptures. And the Apostle would have been referring to the Old Testament Scriptures at this point in His ministry. The disciples should have understood that, but at this point, they understood His person, but did not understand the nature of His work. One thing that is absolutely important for us to understand, and for anyone for that fact, is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He came to bring into this earth the kingdom of God. He came to save His people from their sins. And in order to establish His kingdom here on earth, and to make that kingdom a kingdom of righteousness, He had to deal with sin. And that's the reason He had to die. The wages of sin is death. And the Messiah would take on the sins of His people upon Himself, and He would die the death that they deserved, satisfying the wrath of God in a vicarious, a substitutionary way, And the death that He died upon the cross was an atoning death for us in behalf of us. And then He would be raised three days later claiming the victory over every known enemy that we have. Over sin and over death itself and over the world and over the devil and over every enemy that we have, Christ is victorious in His resurrection. Do you believe that? the cost of that discipleship will be high. When we are enveloped with so many worldly corruptions in our world today, so many political extortions, 
civil crimes, political crimes. We're seeing uh, politicians make absolutely irrational decisions to defund the police, to cheat and lie to get into office, to do whatever they want to do for a cause that is not for us. When we see the crime rising in cities and mass shootings that are now becoming not occasional, but a regular part of our news. And we see so many and have seen so much of the wholesale marketing by preachers and theologians and TV evangelists in the past 50 plus years of our nation selling you cheap grace. It's no wonder our nation is the way it is. And the church has no backbone in our society today. The answer to this is a costly discipleship to follow Jesus. At what cost can you be Jesus' disciple? It cost Him His entire life. It cost Him coming out of glory and becoming man. It cost Him a life where He continually suffered under the temptations of the evil one to find an easier way for you. He had to learn obedience through the things which He suffered. And it cost Him His life upon the cross and the forsakenness of His Father because of our sin. How much did it cost our Lord? You will never be able to comprehend. And He says, if you're willing to be My disciple, you have to be willing to follow Me. We have been preached to by many of the TV evangelists and radio preachers that are very popular and common, many of whom have come right out of Dallas Theological Seminary, the likes of which of Charles Ryrie and Zane Hodges have preached a cheap grace that was far worse in some ways than the German Lutherans had come privy to in their day. Where you can accept Jesus as your Savior, but not have Him as your Lord. Where you can be justified by faith, but then not ever go on to sanctification in your life. And then separating out the things which God has never separated. You can be saved, but live your own life. You can go right on living in sin. And this was marketed wholesale over the radio waves. And, and people and evangelicals have heard this. And this antinomian gospel which says that the law does not apply. We are under grace and not under the law. So therefore, we kick out all of the law. And by definition, we have just distorted the entire Doctrine of sin. For sin is transgression of the law. 
And when we understand that we're not saved by the works of the law or any kind of meritorious favor that we gain with God through our obedience, but is only of grace and all of grace, but when we are saved by grace through faith and the finished work of Jesus, we are to save to follow Him and to live as instruments of righteousness. Therefore, we are to declare ourselves dead indeed unto sin, so that we might live unto righteousness. And that's going to cost you something. Now whether we're considering Jews and the imperial government of Rome in the first century, or of Christians under the Third Reich and living in Nazi Germany in the late 30s and early 40s, or American Christians living today, the answer to all of this mess is not a political revolution, but a true, dedicated, cost discipleship to follow Jesus. To live for Jesus, and if necessary, to die literally in your earthly life for Him. That's the answer to the mess we're in. And that's why preachers need to be preaching the Gospel. There are two things necessary to be saved. And let's just be clear when we're talking about this Gospel this morning. Two things that we, by way of knowledge and understanding and embrace, need to understand for one to be saved, to be a disciple, and to follow Jesus. Number one would be the objective fact. The objective fact is the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, He is the Messiah, and the work He came to do is to die for our sins as a substitutionary atonement. And He paid for our sins and He rose again on the third day. If you believe that or not, it does not change the fact that it is true. It is an objective fact. And that has to be true before we can be saved. But the fact is, it is true. And it is finished. It is completed. And He died once and for all. And that fact is... But just because the fact exists does not mean that you personally are saved. So the second thing that must be true is there is the subjective reality. There is the objective fact that must be true, and it is, but the subjective reality means that you must understand and embrace that objective fact and make it your own. And that's where the specific is to call you out of darkness unto light to pick up your cross and follow Jesus. You have to make that decision yourself. That's the subjective reality. Now that grace comes from God, who by the power of the Holy Spirit recreates you, and when you are a new creature in Christ, and regeneration has changed your heart, it necessarily produces the inseparable fruit of the faith through which you then subjectively embrace the objective fact. 
Both of those must be true. You can't merely believe Jesus, the fat in your head, without subjectively receiving Him and embracing the understanding of what He came to do and place your life into Him by following Him as His disciple. The disciples were at the point in their ministry where they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the coming one. But they did not understand that Jesus had to die and be raised up again to fulfill the very purpose for which He came. They embraced His person, but they had not yet embraced His work. This is why Peter fought Him just many days, not many days earlier, when he says, not so, Lord. He says, Peter, you're not thinking in the way that God thinks. You're thinking in the way that man thinks. Get behind me, Satan. I must do this. This was the second time now in our narrative that Jesus, in a very short amount of time, gets, begins to explain, no, He must go and die at the hands of men and then be raised again the third day. And He will spend the remainder of most of His earthly days now with His disciples, teaching them, now that they've embraced who He was, teaching them what His work is going to entail. He has to get them to understand and connect with the nature of the Messianic work in order to accomplish the Messianic kingdom. And then He's going to help them to understand how this work of Him going to the cross and dying for their sins and be raised the third day is then going to be connected directly to their life and and ministry and discipleship. And that's the connection that you and I must also make. That the work of Jesus upon the cross is connected to us following Him and to our ministry and our purpose while we still have life and breath today on this earth. And it is not cheap. Now if you think that you can live your life any old way you want to do, pursue all of your worldly pursuits and pursue all this while you have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ without anything else but just a little insurance here. That's what's causing much of the problems out there. And let me be the first to tell you, you are not safe. Now, when the Scriptures are given to us, we know that we can learn all kinds of things through natural revelation of God. We learn of His glory. Even the invisible attributes of the Godhead are are clearly seen by the things which He has made. We can look and we can... Last night I was coming out of my office and I looked up into this clear sky of 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 a cloudless... and all the stars and, and just the sense of... Marion, I got this. I got this. It just came over me. You just sense His glory and His majesty and the magnitude of who He is. And He can talk and show us in such the grandeur of His creation down into the very intimate connecting it subjectively with our lives. 
But the Scriptures are given to us to reveal to us who God is and who we are and what the problem is and how that problem can be resolved. And it's in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what the Scriptures are revealing. And as we began to see the Scriptures revealing Christ in His person and in His work, and then revealing God the Father and then the Spirit who would empower it, and as we are introduced to the triune one God, we then come to understand that everything God has put here has no waste in the purpose for which He has given the Scriptures. So this next little section on the temple is not primarily a message on paying a tax that he didn't need to pay. But he did it anyway not so as not to offend anybody. That's not the message. It's certainly part of the narrative, but the main reason that this is in the Scripture is to teach His disciples and us the very nature of His person and His work so that they would be faithful in their discipleship. He's teaching them the cost of discipleship. I actually was somewhat surprised and amazed as I pulled commentary after commentary after commentary off of my, and I began to open it up, saying, how am I going to preach this obscure little passage? I went out there to sermonaudio.com and I I was beginning to look at the, the very few sermons on this particular and I put them all away and I'm like Lord just show me what this is not about paying taxes or not paying taxes this is about special revelation and how I might know to be saved and be a faithful disciple of Jesus and in that begins to understand the context of what he had just began to tell his disciples about the nature of his work And so while certainly a part of the narrative, the main reason that this is in the Scripture is to teach His disciples more about the nature of His work and His person as it relates to that work, He's teaching them of Himself. This event seemed to be focused around Peter, and Peter may have only been the the only disciple that was involved in this somewhat private event. Let's go through this little narrative here and see if we can unpack it a little bit in the light of where I think it should be. First of all, there's this inquiry about Jesus and the temple tax. Verse 24, And when they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? You can already see right there the mindset of the first century Jew. And remember, not many days ago, we looked at the passages of Scripture that we and they do not have any excuses. No excuses. Jesus, by this time in His ministry, had evidenced Himself of who He was. He had declared who He was. He had shown by the power of His miraculous works, His divinity. He had shown them what He came to do, who He was. In all of this, there was absolutely at no time for any excuse by this time in His earthly ministry. 
But it shows us the mindset with this kind of question. Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? You can see the way in which that question is asked. The temple tax was a a tax. It was not a Roman tax. It was actually a Jewish tax. It was levied upon every Jewish male for the, the, the operation of the temple. In fact, when I say every Jewish male, not just those in Jerusalem, but throughout the entire world, and for even the, the Jews of the diaspora were expected to pay the temple tax. There is some instruction and precedence for this back in Exodus 30, 13, when they were to collect a tax to cover the cost of the tabernacle. So this was in the law, and it was instruction for Jews to enact. By the time that Jesus was there in first century, of course, it was no more tabernacle, but the permanent structure of the temple, which replaced the tabernacle, the, the cost of this tax was to drachmas. And that was equivalent to two days of a man's common wage. Two days wages. And now the very question that the tax collectors asked Peter provides an understanding of how the Jews were thinking about Jesus in that day. We we don't know if this question was initiated by authorities to test Jesus, as often was the case. But the way that it is worded may seem to suggest that there was doubt that Jesus was the Messiah and who He said He was. And then Peter answered the question rather impetuously, rather quickly, rather (laughs) Petrine-like. Yes! Well, of course! Almost, you can hear him say. The answer certainly sprang from Peter's knowledge of Christ as the Messiah. He had some presuppositions in place about that, and, and good ones at that. Jesus did not come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill the law. And now, He did, on occasions, take exception by violating the pharisaical traditions of the law, but He never violated the law of God. He was born of a woman, born under the law, to fulfill the law in our behalf. And so it's by one man's obedience that we, many, were made righteous. This is part of the Gospel. And since the temple tax had precedence in the law, Peter assumed that Jesus, who was obligated to keep the law, would certainly... Pay the temple tax. You can see Peter's reasoning was not unreasonable. But it also shows Peter's lack of understanding of the nature of the person of Jesus. The nature of His work. So Jesus is going to seize this opportunity as He's many times done before. And He will seize this opportunity to instruct Peter And he's going to say so many things by way of implication that he's going to say it in a very concise form, but he's going to teach a lot. So we see his instruction. Notice there, he takes the initiation in this conversation. He didn't wait for Peter to come and ask. It says in verse 25, And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipating him said, and you just imagine this. So, so Peter had just had this conversation, and Peter comes back into the house, and Jesus is just there waiting for him. 
Peter comes in the door. Peter? And he asks a question. What do you think, Simon? Notice the name he uses here. From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, almost without having to think about it, uh, (laughs) strangers, but of course. And then Jesus said, then the sons are free. Now Jesus is going to instruct by what we call by way of implication. By the way, there is explicit revelation, which Jesus or the Bible will explicitly say truth, but there's also implicit revelation whereby we are supposed to understand the truth by the implications that it gives. And the implicit revelation is just as authoritative authoritative as the explicit revelation. In fact, we see this a number of times. One brief example of this is when the Sadducees were trying to trap Jesus and they were trying to, uh, regarding the resurrection from the dead. And Jesus rebuked them after they went through the brothers and whose you know, wife will she be in heaven. He says, you do not understand the Scriptures. And then He says, Have you not read, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And from that, they were to understand the doctrine of the resurrection. He rebuked Nicodemus regarding the being born again in John chapter 3. Are you not the teacher of the law and you do not understand this doctrine right out of Ezekiel? And so by way of implication, here is Jesus now going to teach us some profound truths. Number one, He's going to teach us that kings and their sons don't pay taxes on their own property. Let's just get this out of the way for just a moment so we can get to the real point of the the text. We're dealing with taxes. We, We know how we feel about taxes. I personally believe that property tax is one of the most immoral taxes along with the estate taxes because if it's my property, I shouldn't have to pay the government for my property. I think that would support what Jesus is saying here. Now let's just get that out of the way because that's not really what the, the main point is here. Okay, Let's get back to the focus. Kings and their sons don't pay taxes on their own properties. That part was obvious and Peter answered correctly. But number two, Jesus from this implied that He didn't owe the temple tax because the Father, His Father, owned the temple and He was the Son. Now this is where we're getting into the the meat of where this little illustration regarding the temple tax would have us to go. Now this was a truth that Peter had already admitted You, Jesus, are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So Peter had acknowledged this as a person, but he hadn't connected the dots to what it meant for the temple. This implies that God the Father owns the temple, and that Jesus was God the Father's Son, and therefore, He didn't have to pay the temple tax. He was not obligated to, and in fact, it was wrong to even ask him to. 
this, this implied that the temple was not only God the Father's, but it was also Jesus's who is the Son. This temple is Jesus's temple. It's had everything to do with now how he's discipling his disciples regarding the nature of his work. In fact, Jesus was the reality and the essence of everything the temple was. The temple was this place where heaven and earth came together and you had God's space and God time and, and they had a place where God met together with men and provided a way for sinners through the way of sacrifice to come into the fellowship and the worship of Almighty and Holy God. But so fixed had the Jews gotten their gaze on the temple that they didn't realize everything that it had been pointing to. You can't contain God through a temple made by human hands. You're not going to box Him in. And yet, here's the disciples had not yet come to this awareness either. And Jesus was the sacrificial lamb that would be offered upon the altar. His work would then accomplish the very cleansing that the bronze sea for the water that held all of the cleansing and purification water would symbolize. Jesus was the lampstand inside the holy place because He was the light of the world. He was the bread upon the table and the bread from heaven which gives life to men. He was the veil, and His flesh was the veil that was torn in two that then provides a way for sinners to come before the holiness of God. He was the ark that contained the Ten Commandments, the very law of God, and it is in Christ that the law in us is fulfilled. He is the atoning lid that covers this ark, and it is His blood that was shed upon it for our sins so that the purity of righteousness would be maintained and God would be the just and the justifier. He was the altar of incense, which is the prayer of the saints, but as we pray in Jesus' name, all of our prayers to be accepted must be mediated through Jesus, and now He's at the Father's right hand making intercession for you and for me. The temple, in every detail, was about Jesus and what He had to do in His work with His Father empowered by the Spirit for you and for me to the glory of God in three. So not only did Jesus not have to pay the temple tax, it was wrong for the Jews to even ask it of Him. And it showed them the mindset that they had no clue of the nature of the Messiah's work. So then we see the concession in verse 27. Here's Jesus. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea. Peter, I'm sending you back fishing. 
Cast in a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you've opened its mouth, you'll find a coin. Go and take the coin and pay the temple tax for you and for me. The coin that Peter then found was referred to as a stator, which was equivalent to four drachmas, which covered just the right amount of tax for two people, two male Jewish males, and he paid for Peter's and he paid for his. As far as we know, this is the only miracle that we ever know that Jesus performed in order to have money, to get money. It wasn't because he needed it, because there's a lesson here. See, while Jesus, he wasn't obligated to pay that temple tax. He was exempt from paying it, having to pay it. But he decided to pay it anyway. There's a lesson for our discipleship here. It was his personal right not to pay the temple tax. And he paid it nonetheless. And in this point, there is a lesson for our discipleship if we are going to follow Jesus. He could have stood his ground, but that would not have been expedient for the kingdom purposes at that moment or in that time. This is not merely a pacifism or a desire not to resist in any way. Because we have to remember what He is about to do not many days from now when He enters in Jerusalem. And the first thing He does is He goes to the temple, makes a cord of whip, and He whips out and drives the money changers from the temple saying, My Father's house which is called a house of prayer and you have made it a den of thieves. And violently drives out the money changers which are defiling His holy house. So why not protest here over the temple tax? And when we learn what it means to really follow Jesus in the cost of discipleship, we come to understand everything in terms of not... Not what are our personal rights to defend, but rather what is expedient for the kingdom of God and for His glory. American evangelicals, you listen to me. It is not your personal rights as much as it is what is right for the kingdom and for His glory that you must defend. But because we have been sold cheap grace and we have bought it in mass quantities, we think of things in terms of our person more than in terms of His person. We tend to sometimes think of things not in the mind of God, but in the mind of man. The grid through which we need to make our decisions has to be a grid of the glory of God in the light of Jesus Christ and for the advancement of His kingdom. 
And it may cost you your life, and it may cost you death in this life. But if you die for a good cause, make sure you're dying for His cause and not your own. This is going to take thinking, and it's going to take godly wisdom, which will come through prayer. So Jesus said here, so as not to offend them. Because they wouldn't understand anyway. And this is not the place nor the time to make this point. He told Peter to go fishing. And they paid the tax. See, the point here is not to pay taxes Or to pay taxes that you owe. The point is not to try to get out of paying taxes that you may be obligated to. The point is not to try to find the exemption of paying taxes because you don't feel like you owe them. That's, that's not it at all. The point is, what is the nature of Jesus' work and how does that connect with your cost to be a disciple? The temple would reveal the messianic work for salvation for sinners and the establishment of the messianic kingdom, the very nature of how that kingdom will live its way out upon the earth. And Jesus told us to count the cost of discipleship because if you're going to live for righteousness, you will be persecuted for it, but blessed are you when you do. So you have to take an inventory of what it means to truly follow Jesus. And that's why He says, unless you count the cost, you cannot be My disciple. And you don't set out on this course of life if you are not willing to pay the cost. The cost of discipleship includes denying yourself and taking up your cross, the implement of death, and order to live for Jesus and to advance His kingdom, whatever that may mean that He would have you do. The cost of discipleship will sometimes require us giving up our desires. Jesus had rebuked Peter who desired that Jesus not go to Jerusalem and die by the hands of men. Not so, Lord. Peter, you're not thinking like God, but you're thinking like man. Get behind me, Satan. Sometimes we have to give way to our desires. And that's costly. Jesus here teaches us that sometimes the cost of discipleship will mean giving up something of your own personal rights and serve in order to serve a greater cause. And yet the cost of discipleship may also include standing by Jesus supporting Him while He is driving out the money changers from His house, the church. And not shrinking back from the message of the truth that we need to proclaim and the firm stance that we must take for righteousness to be fulfilled. This is not a message of passivism. 
It's a message of gospel glory, of Jesus, of following Him, of exalting Him. As the Holy Spirit would come to fill us, He said, I am not coming to exalt in My glory, but I will glorify Him. And so as we take John the Baptist's creed and we say, I must decrease, He must increase. Let me ask you to give away your personal rights for the cause of the crown rights of King Jesus and live for that and live for that and die for that if necessary. That's what's wrong with our country. We have bought cheap grace. We want to have our cake and eat it too, where our cake is the world, but our cake is desiring to have the icing of salvation. And we want to have them both. And Jesus says, you've loved the world, the love of the Father is not in you. So while we live in a world that's falling apart at the seams all around us, be watchful and prayerful, understanding what the will of God is for your life. What is the will of God for your life? Rejoice always. In everything, give thanks. Pray without ceasing. Turn so much of that energy and that time you spend on social media into prayer. Take so much of that angst in your spirit when you read the daily news and get on your knees and you pray to Almighty God who can bring justice upon this land and right all of the wrongs. Put all of that anger to work against these ungodly schemes and trust the Lord Jesus Christ and don't be afraid to speak out in His name the very Gospel. But make sure that you get it right. Make sure you have His person right and the nature of His work right. There's an objective fact. There's a subjective reality. Press that into people's lives as you continue to live it yourself. It's not about... Politics. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is political. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. So make sure you understand the nature of the kingdom and how you live your life and how you die for your your Savior because it must always be focused on Jesus and the gospel mission. It will require life to be His disciple. And it will cost you something. It cost Him dearly. It's not about demanding your personal rights, but rather living for and defending God's rights. If you can keep it straight, that one will save you a lot of trouble and keep you out of a lot of trouble. On the one hand, And it will also cause you a lot of trouble on the other. But there, the world will glorify God because of your good works. On the other hand, we don't want to be faulted in our own flesh. It may cost you dearly of all your earthly possessions. It may even cost you perhaps your earthly life, but if you give your life for Christ, you will find it and gain it. But if you try to save it, preserve it, 
his expense, you will lose it and your soul. See, it's only in this context of understanding the very person of Christ and the nature of His work and now connecting that with our own discipleship that life has any sense. It's, that's the only way it makes sense. It's the only way that you're going to find your purpose in life. And your purpose in life is not about accruing upon you affluence and status and material things, and personal peace. That is not where you're going to find your purpose in life. You're going to find your purpose in life when you deny yourself of all those things, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus at all costs, and then you're going to know your purpose. You'll be fulfilled. Sometimes your days are going to go wonderfully well, and other times you're going to be at the bottom of the barrel, but with Jesus, He's always with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you, but you live it for Him and get your mind out of yourself, and then you turn your eyes upon Christ, and you give Him everything that you have because you are not your own. He bought you with His own blood. You were bought with a price. And it's only in this context that God's glorified. We are most satisfied when God is being glorified. And so the cost of discipleship, it's not about cheap grace. It costs the Lord His life. And it will request of you yours. As we think about this little tax, let's be mindful of how it connects the dots so much with the way we're living today. Stay true to the Gospel. That's the secret. That's the power of Christ's kingdom. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for the power of the Gospel that is powerful to save us and powerful to save those that we share it with. As You've called us not only to be a follower of Jesus and to be His disciple, but You've called us to go and be discipler of the nations. And as we go to share the Gospel, we pray that we would be willing to live and to die for Jesus, whatever His will is for our life. We are so wrapped up in ourselves. We are so posh, so soft. We have very little fortitude. And yet we pray, dear Lord, that You would give us the inner strength through Your Spirit. Get out of this way of thinking and to give our attention, our heart, and our focus solely to Jesus Christ, to God the Father, and to the Holy Spirit. And as we do that, may our lives be turned from the inside and may we turn our attention to the outside of us to God, Christ, and His people, and to this fallen world. Give us a boldness and a courage that only Your Spirit can grant. And may we be instruments of righteousness. And Lord, we pray for justice in this world, and we pray that You would use us as instruments of justice, and of mercy, of love, and of peace. And we pray that Your Spirit would take this message imprint it into our minds and engrafted into our hearts that it would bring forth 
fruits of righteousness. And we pray this for the cause and the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.